Good morning. Our scripture reading today comes from Philippians 1, 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of the grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Since its Netflix release, Jerry Seinfeld's 23 Hours to Kill, as you may know, has been a big hit. Now, I have to say I'm not a great Jerry Seinfeld fan, but I have to say, in his humorous way, in his insightful way, he really captures our cultural moment. And even more, he captures the impoverishment of our lives. Listen to what he says. Wherever you are, really, anywhere in life, at some point, you get the heck out of here. You're at work, you want to go home. You're at home, I got to get out. You're out and it's late. I got to get back. I got to get up. Nobody wants to be anywhere, have you noticed? Nobody likes anything. We're cranky, we're irritable, and we are dealing with it by constantly changing locations. We are all just killing some time. Now, Jerry Seinfeld points amazingly to the condition of our hearts, and particularly our impoverished cultural moment. Now, many professionals remind us that there is a gnawing anxiety in our time, a growing joylessness in the hallmark world of our life. And what is really true of our time is that ironies abound. In fact, we are awash in ironies. We have so much to live with and yet so little to live for. We are so technologically connected, right? And yet feel so incarnationally alone. We are so busy and yet so unhauntingly satisfied. We have so much information and we lack so much wisdom. We pursue pleasure more and more, right? And we experience joy less and less. And the global pandemic has only amplified these ironies. And one of the great casualties of the COVID world has been the deep loss of joy in our lives. Every one of us longs for joy, to experience it at a deep level, but how do we find it? Now the answer to this longing heart question we find in Holy Scripture may be surprising to you. And even more surprising is that it springs from a letter written from a cold, dark jail cell by a first century Christian by the name of Paul. We refer to this letter now as Philippians. And if you have a Bible with you, turn with me to the New Testament book of Philippians chapter 1. Now this morning, we are beginning a new message series we are very excited about, and we are exploring the book of Philippians. We have entitled this new series, Return to Joy. And our prayerful hope for all of us in the weeks ahead is that we would find new joy in our lives 
and new joy as a church family. And as a church family, we would experience a renaissance of life-giving, contagious joy. Now, as we enter this letter from Paul to the first century church at Philippi, let's first sort of set the historical context just a bit. We find in the New Testament book of Acts, Acts chapter 16, that Paul established a church in this very vibrant, bustling Greek city. And he becomes their spiritual father, so to speak. And these converts to Christianity have this great and right affection and appreciation for Paul. So much so that this community of faith sends money, yes, money to Paul to support his church planting missionary endeavors. And one of the members of the Philippian church by the name of Epaphroditus is tasked with being a courier of this financial offering to be brought to Paul. So he travels, he visits Paul in prison, most likely in Rome. There's some debate about that. But he gives him an encouraging update about the Philippian church. So it is in this context, from a dark prison cell with shackled hands, Paul writes this letter, which surprisingly is overflowing with joy. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase of the message, introduces this remarkable letter this way. I love it. This is Paul's happiest letter, and the happiness is infectious. Now, you will notice this, that Paul's literary tone emerges from a very unlikely place, a prison cell. And I want us all to keep that in mind as we explore together this heartwarming letter today and in the weeks ahead. So here in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, we encounter Paul's warm introduction to his letter. And Paul's introduction is framed around affirmation as well as intercession. And it's skillfully woven together with the common thread of joy. So how do we find joy? Paul encourages us to embrace and indwell three transforming realities. First, a faith community that delights in us, a loving God, who will never walk out on us, and an attentive life that forms us. So the flow of the text is this, a faith community, a loving God, and attentive life. So let's begin. The first truth that emerges here about how we find joy is in a faith community who delights in us. You will notice after his personal greeting in verses 1 and 2, Paul then writes these warm words of affirmation in verses 3 through 5. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, Paul immediately expresses his prayerful and joyful delight in the church members of Philippi. And Paul, you will notice, very closely connects his experience of joy with their partnership in the gospel. Now, this English word in the original language of Greek that is translated for us partnership can also be translated into English fellowship. And I actually like this translation of fellowship better. Some of the older uh, Bibles have that. Now, while partnership is a good translation, it's fine, but in English it can be misunderstood as kind of connoting a transactional thing rather than a relational thing. And Paul is focusing on the relational reality of this. And he again emphasizes this in verse 7. If you look down there, he says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all because, notice, I have you in my heart. Paul's heartfelt joy is primarily in that the Philippian church is 
related to him. It's connected to him. It's his relational closeness, not just their financial support of him. And we need to keep that in mind. So at heart level, Paul experiences this deep delight in feeling part of them, and he experiences their delight in him as a faith community. Isn't it true we often mistakenly view joy in our lives as something that flows or emerge from positive life circumstances? But Paul understood joy in a different way. And that is, he understood joy as flowing from deep and intimate and abiding relationships. I find it instructive and insightful that Dr. Alan Shore, who's one of the leading uh, voices in the Department of Psychiatry at UCLA, he speaks a lot and researches on neuropsychology and is one of the leading world experts on attachment theory, has defined joy this way. Listen to how he defines it. Joy is when someone is glad to be with me. Let me say that again. Joy is when someone is glad to be with me. Now, I don't know Dr. Shore's faith commitment or his worldview, but I believe he is articulating a very profound and timeless truth that echoes Paul's words here. This is a truth closely aligned with all the biblical writers where joy is found and what joy is. In other words, joy is relational, much more than circumstantial, and it is experienced in our relationships with others, particularly in our community with them. And one of the dangers uh, on an emotional and interpersonal neurobiological level is today in our culture, we confuse joy with pleasure. Now, culturally, our joy strategy, most of us, is the pursuit of individual pleasure. Now, while pleasure is not necessarily bad in itself, it does not deliver true joy. In fact, we know from neuroscience and other research that joy and pleasure are actually experienced differently in our bodies, neurologically. Now, joy is found in relationships. It's embedded in community that is glad to be with us, that delights in us when, we may say, we walk in the room. We not only need each other, our capacity to experience joy is deeply, greatly limited without each other. Now that joy is deeply relational in our lives has been validated, hasn't it, during this past year's global pandemic? As people feel more comfortable coming back to church, I have heard from so many words like, hey, I really miss being in church, or it's really great to be back. And our staff has felt the same way, like, we really miss seeing you. And for those who are comfortable, it's been great having you back. And for those who are waiting, we can't wait for you to come back in your time. But what we are experiencing in returning back to incarnational worship is a sense of the joy that we have missed, isn't it? Joy that is found in an incarnational faith community we are a part of, and joy bursts forth in our hearts when we are with brothers and sisters in Christ who truly delight in seeing us, who are glad to be with us. And as we come back to church, not only do we return to our church home, we also return to a life-giving fountain of joy. Now notice in the text, if you go down, down scoot down to verse 8, Paul says the most stunning thing. And I really can't get my whole heart and mind around this, but it's absolutely stunning. He says, For God is my witness how I yearn for you, all with the affection, notice that word, of Christ Jesus, the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, Paul's word choice here for affection in the original language is a word that captures the deepest, innermost 
emotions of feeling, of love and joy in a secure and safe presence of another person. In fact, Luke uses the same word in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. Do you remember that? The father welcomes the younger son back home to himself and the entire community. And when the father sees him, this is the word that is describing his emotional state of joy. But it is not just the father. The parable of the prodigal son tells us that he throws a party and the entire community experiences joy. On the other hand, the elder son is joyless because he lacks relational intimacy with his family and the community. Because joy is about relationships, and it erupts in our hearts when others are glad to be with us. In other words, a relational deficit in our lives will mean a joy deficit in our lives. The foundation of a joy-giving community is built deeply into our church's mission statement. I want to remind us of that from the very beginning of Christ's community. Our mission statement is to be a caring family and multiplying disciples, influencing our community and world for Jesus Christ. And notice how our mission statement begins. A caring family, that's the foundation. If we are to be a caring family that God has called us to, then we will be glad to be with each other. We will welcome each other and be committed to one another in a spirit of gracious and generous hospitality, not only in our corporate worship gatherings, which I hope you experience, but even more so in a community group or a small group context, which we encourage everyone who's a part of the Christ Community family to participate. And if you're not yet in a community group or a small group, perhaps an important application to this morning's message on joy is to seek out a small group community where relationships with others can deepen and joy can blossom. In fact, we may call community groups or a small group a place of joy called joy groups. That's really what they are. From original creation design, we are relational beings. We know this from the book of Genesis. We are made in the image of a relational God, and it makes sense, doesn't it, that the joy our hearts so deeply long for is relational. It is found and experienced in deepening friendships, in true Christian fellowship. So here in Paul's introduction to the letter, Paul's deep joy begins with a strong horizontal component. But we must not miss its foundational vertical dimension. Joy is found, as Paul will tell us now, in a relationship with the most joyful being in the universe, the triune God himself, the ultimate source of all joy. Our triune God is the most important someone in your life who is always glad to be with you. So how do we find joy? First, in a faith community that delights in us. But notice where Paul goes. Ultimately, in a loving God who will never, ever walk out on us. In pursuit of joy, this is the second reality we need to embrace and dwell. A loving God who will never walk out on us. Here in verse 6, you will notice its placement in the introduction. It's tucked smack dab in the middle of Paul's introduction. And it gives it a bit of punch. We discover our primary source of joy. And that is... A loving God who is really glad to be with us and will never, never walk out on us. Notice how Paul describes this in verse 6. Paul says, I am sure of this, that he, that is God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. Now let's unpack that just a bit. What is Paul saying? Paul's reassuring words here to the Philippian Christians echo a truth we must not miss. 
and that is the rock-solid security and safety in our relationship with Christ, knowing that He will never walk out on us, that He will never abandon us. This is a joy-filled reality flowing from an unwavering confidence we have in His sovereign plan, His good provision and presence in our lives every day, no matter our circumstances. Now, this past week, I experienced joy in a place that I wouldn't have expected. It was an unusual setting. I had the privilege of sitting at the bedside of John. John is a longtime friend, a dear friend, and a longtime member of the church family of Christ's community. John is now facing death. And death, in many ways, is really hard, and it's sad. Yet, in that room, there was an unusual sense of joy that permeated it. Surrounded by family members, I opened the scriptures and read the hopeful promises of, of God's word to John. John smiled and engaged, and then John joined us all in singing the doxology. It was a beautiful moment, filled with joy. And even in the midst of his pain, the sadness of saying goodbye soon, the joy of God's presence, I have to fill the room with an unwavering confidence that John, even though he is walking through the valley of the shadow of death, is not alone, that the Good Shepherd is with him, holding him in his omnipotent, nail-scarred hands, eager, delighting to welcome him home. See, Jesus reminds all of us as his apprentices that he will never leave us or forsake us. He reminds us that our daily wellspring of joy flows from knowing experientially that God not only delights in us, he will never walk out on us. Paul will capture this in his brilliant chapter of Romans, Romans 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And I love how the Old Testament prophet Zephaniah, I'm not sure you've spent a lot of time there, it's hard to find, but it's a really little gem in the Old Testament. But Zephaniah beautifully captures God's joyful gladness in being with us. Let me give you just a sample. In Zephaniah 3.17, we read these words. The Lord God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. Now notice what he says. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. Wow. No matter what our circumstances in life, in your life, in our relationships, in our workplaces, and yes, even as we approach death, Paul reminds us here in his introduction and throughout his letter to the Philippians that God himself delights in us and he is the only and sufficient foundation of joy in our lives. The good news is joy is always available to you and me because God is always present with you and me and He is completely sufficient. He is always there for us in our homes, in our relationships, in our classrooms at school, in our workplaces, in every nook and cranny of our lives. Joy is there because God is there. I love how King David captures the joy-giving presence of God in his life. Psalm 1611 is a verse of scripture I encourage you to memorize. It is a continual companion to my soul, almost on a daily basis. King David, in exuberant praise to God, says this, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Notice what David says. In your presence is overwhelming as the idea, is complete joy. Because you and I were created with joy in mind, to live in enjoyment of God's presence as fellow image bearers 
And the joy pulsating beauty of the created world enhances our joy. This is why immersing ourselves in beauty, whether it's a breathtaking sunset, a striking work of art, a moving piece of literature, or an enrapturing score of music can bring such joy to our daily lives. How do we find joy in what often seems like a very joyless culture and world? Paul says, we find joy in a faith community that delights in us. We find joy in a God who will never walk out on us. But where does Paul go in his introduction? And it points to the third truth that we should dwell and embrace. And that is an attentive life that forms us. An attentive life that forms us. Look at verses 9 through 11. You'll notice Paul articulates what he's praying for them. He's praying for them an attentive life that spiritually forms them into an increasing Christ-likeness of life. He says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with all knowledge and discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You will notice, as Paul concludes his introduction to this letter, he directs the believers to live a more fully Godward life that is actually very earthy and very daily in attentive living. What Paul is saying as he captures this here, he says an attentive life is a lifestyle of joy. Paul places our experiential joy in Christ in the context, you will notice, of spiritual formation that flows from an intimate an abiding apprenticeship with Jesus. I want you to notice in these verses Paul's language of experiential knowledge, of discerning wisdom, a moral virtue, that's excellence there, and growing Christ-likeness. Notice the phrase, the fruit of righteousness. Paul's image of fruit here echoes Jesus' teaching in the Upper Room Discourse of abiding and fruit-bearing, but also Paul's own description of the fruit of the Spirit that produces joy. In other words, a joyful life is an overflow of being filled with the Holy Spirit, of living a Spirit-filled life. One of the greatest indicators of a Spirit-filled life is a life of joy. See, disobedience can keep us from experiencing the joy-filled, Spirit-filled life. And that is something all of us should reflect on in our life. But so does distraction. A distracted life will inevitably prove to be a joyless life. And one of the great joy robbers of our cultural moment is not only the isolation that COVID has brought, but the amount of distractedness and hurriedness our lives often exemplify. See, inattentiveness, whether it's driven by too much screen time, or too demanding of a schedule, or living an undisciplined life, may well be the greatest obstacle for you and me to grow in Christ-likeness. Perhaps the greatest barrier for you and for me to experience the joy our hearts so long for. And while a crazy pace of our lives fuels a perilous inattentiveness, what perhaps is most perilous to you and to me is our inattention to the deepest longings of our heart, our deepest desire for God himself. Now, Leighton Ford wrote a book several years ago that I think is absolutely excellent. I highly recommend it to you. It's called The Attentive Life. 
And Leighton speaks with profound clarity and needed challenge for all of us who embrace a kingdom life as apprentices of Jesus. Now, Leighton Ford pens these words. Listen, perhaps he writes, inattentiveness is our greatest sin, not only against him, but against ourselves. Let me say that again. Leighton Ford says, perhaps inattentiveness is our greatest sin, not only against him, but against ourselves. I think he may be right. So how do we grow in a more attentive life? I trust as we walk through the book of Philippians, we're going to be able to more fully answer that question. But you will notice throughout the letter, it's about embracing the spiritual disciplines that Jesus embraced. It is about nurturing our intimacy with God, and we may think of these disciplines as they nurture intimacy with God as habits of joy. And one of the spiritual disciplines that will help us grow in greater attentiveness to God, to our own hearts, to others God has placed in our lives, is prayer. You will notice a joy-filled Paul models for us right off at the very beginning of his letter, in his introduction, the discipline of prayer. Paul begins his introduction with prayer and ends it. This prayer theme works through his whole book. And prayer is not only the greatest privilege we have, it is one of the greatest means through which a more attentive life can be formed. Prayer is at the very heart of the attentive life. And an attentive life is where true joy is found. And what I've discovered in my own life, and maybe you have too, is that when I am most prayerful, <laughs> I am most joyful. And when my joy tank is low, when I look at my life, often I see my prayer life is low too. And I have seen in others that same reality. That often the most prayerful Christians are the most joyful Christians even in the midst of life's most difficult circumstances. I think of Christian Iranian pastor Farshid Fatih. And Farshid was arrested and spent five years in the notorious Evan prison in Tehran before being released in December 2015. Now, during the many days in his solitary confinement, he wrote a poem entitled, My Wilderness which more than anything else is a testimony to his joy. Let me give you a sample of it. Farshid writes in solitary confinement, my wilderness is painful, but lovely. My wilderness seems to be a lonely trip, but I am not alone. My beloved is with me. Not only him, but my faithful brothers and sisters, I carry them all in my heart. My wilderness is dangerous, but safe because I dwell between his shoulders. So I love my wilderness because it takes me to the deeper part of you, Lord, and no one can separate me from your arms forever. Do you hear what Farshid is saying? Like the Apostle Paul, he is finding joy in the most surprising place. It is a place where God was always with him, would never walk out on him, and embedded in the truth of a faith community that delighted in him and prayed for him. In fact, after his release, Farshid was interviewed, and he describes giving the life-giving joy that came over him, yes, in solitary confinement. And he describes it as sensing in a deeper way the Holy Spirit's presence with him. But he didn't just stop there. He said it was also the brothers and sisters around the world praying for him, including 
many of us who knew him at Christ's community and prayed for him. What I'm reminded as we begin this letter is Paul wants us to know at the heart of the attentive life of apprenticeship with Jesus is prayer. An attentive life of apprenticeship will bring greater joy. So what next step in prayer will you take this week? Perhaps it's carving out a regular time to pray and maybe beginning by slowly reciting the Lord's Prayer or Psalm 23. Maybe it's beginning a short little prayer journal where you are praying for a few others that God has laid on your heart for our church family, our nation, for the global persecuted church. And maybe if you haven't signed up for the form.life yet on our website, you do that today. Each day, you'll receive an email that will guide you growing in Christ through the spiritual disciplines. And now, we are presently in the form.life focusing on the spiritual discipline of prayer. See, Jesus' joy emerges not from a prison, but from a cross. And let's face it, a Roman cross is the last place we would ever expect to find joy. Yet the writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews looks back at Jesus dying on the cross for you and me so that we can be forgiven and given new creation life. And you know what? He points to Jesus' joy, <laughs> even in the midst of the most unimaginable suffering. In Hebrews chapter 12, after encouraging followers of Jesus, uh, to continue their faith and to be diligent even in the midst of suffering, we read these words in verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So how do we find joy in a joyless world? We are reminded then in a blood-stained cross and an empty tomb, that God declares his love for us, that he delights in us, and that he will never walk out on us. Our God is not only someone who became one of us, but is someone who is infinitely glad to be with us. For it is in him and his people we find the joy our hearts so long for. It.